Hey, well, good morning, everyone. You may be wondering why I'm teaching today via video. Uh, some of you may know that uh, after a couple days of symptoms this past Thursday, I actually tested positive for COVID. We wanted to love you well. So we elected to record here on Saturday night at the church and simply replay this for you on Sunday morning so that we don't risk exposing you, your family, or anybody that we love or care about to uh, what we're going through this week. And, uh, you know, we're in the book of Malachi, and each week in this series we're asking this question, how should human beings respond to the love of God? I mean, what happens to people when they begin to drift from God's love? And last week we were in Malachi 2, right, and we saw that when people begin to question God's love, they fail to love one another. And the central passage there in Malachi 2 is in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? And we said last week, you know, that to break faith with someone is to fail to support them. It's to be disloyal to them. When we break uh, faith with someone, uh, we're doing just that. And here Malachi is really challenging God's people to demonstrate a love and a loyalty to one another. Now, today, we're going to see that when people begin to question God's love, when they drift from God's love, you know, uh, they're going to fail to give back to him that which he has so graciously and so generously provided. We're going to see that they will refuse generosity and in some cases begin to worship the very resources that God has given instead of God himself. And what we mean by that is they'll actually use their stewardship of the resources God's given them to feed you know, their idolatry rather than serve God. Now, the reality is if, if we're gonna be part of a community that cares about others, that cares about those folks that live outside its walls, it's gonna require a new understanding for many of us related to our relationship with money. So today, we're going to look at one of the most fascinating passages in all of the Bible. Uh, this passage really demonstrates, I think, both how and why money exercises such power over us. And it's a very uh, surprising passage, really, for a number of reasons. And here's the first surprise that we see in verse 8. Will a man rob God? That's the question. The word rob here is a very, very rare word, and it's also a very violent word. It literally means to oppress, to pillage, or to plunder. Now, why would God use a word like that in relation to human beings? I mean, how could we plunder or pillage God? Well, I think to understand that, we have to look at the teaching outside of this passage, the rest of Scripture. You know, in Psalm 24, verse 1, for example, we're told this, The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the whole world and all who live in it are His. And so I think we're just told, look, everything belongs to God. God owns everything, including you and I and the things that he gives us. And furthermore, in Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, we're told that because everything that we have comes from God's hand, in other words, that God actually gives us the ability to produce you know, wealth, that uh, things like our abilities, our health, our circumstances, our opportunities, 
All of those things come by come from God. God provided all of those things. And I, I've said this before, you know, because if you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, you know, I've worked hard for the things that I have. That may be true, but if God had put you on a mountain in Mongolia in the middle of the 13th century, I don't think you'd be doing so well, no matter how hard you worked. And we're told that furthermore, when God gives us these things, he doesn't give up his ownership. In other words, he wants us to relate to our money as a broker might relate to their client. So as a broker, a steward, as a manager, the first thing is a broker recognizes he's investing someone else's money. It's not his, right? And we're to recognize that he is the owner and, uh, you know, I'm only giving the, my broker my money for a season for him to marriage and uh, to manage. And I want you to think about this. You know, a broker must invest his client's money in line, right, with the directions, the desires, the goals, and the values of his clients. In other words, he or she is investing someone else's money. It doesn't belong to the broker. He's only managing it. And if they don't invest that money in line with the values and directions of the client, it's called fraud. You know, so God is the great creator investor and uh, his values are that we take a portion of that which he is graciously and generously given to us and offer that back to him to be used for the betterment of humankind. We're to plow those resources back into the human community to invest and share those resources with those who have less. In fact, we're to use those resources to bring healing, you might say in our context, in Jesus' name, to invest it according to his vision and values. I'll tell you a story about this. When I was in seminary in Dallas, Texas, my wife Jackie and I went to get dinner at an Arby's that was really close to our campus. And when we went in, you know, the place was completely empty, but there were three employees behind the counter. So Jackie and I approached that counter to order our food. And to my right, I noticed a man coming through the door. I didn't think much of that until I looked to my right and saw, you know, that he was holding a gun. And so he approached the counter. He ordered Jackie and I away from the counter, ordered us to face a glass wall where we could see in the reflection in the glass and kind of see everything that was happening. He then approached the counter and began to rob each of those three employees. He also then took all the money out of all the cash registers, kind of waving his gun, you know, and swearing the whole time. Then after he was finished robbing the employees, he approached Jackie and I, told us to turn around all the while, you know, pointing the gun at me. And he says to me, give me your wallet. And so like any sane and reasonable person, I said, no. And so he ratcheted things up a little bit. He said, give me your wallet or I'm going to shoot your... And he referred to a part of my anatomy that I sit on regularly. So in kind, I said, well, you're just going to have to shoot me then because you're not getting my wallet. Now, my wife, who had been completely quiet to this point because she was petrified, literally begins to sink her fingernails into my forearm and she says to me, you give him your wallet. 
I mean, <laughs> whose side is she on anyway? I couldn't believe it. So after calculating that the gunman was just out of my reach, I reluctantly handed him my wallet, but I was still pretty raw about the whole thing. So as he was turned around to leave, I said, hey, buddy, uh, could you just take my money, you know, and any credit cards you want out, but throw the wallet down outside because it has my license and some other things that, you know, I don't really want to have to go through the hassle of, you know, replacing all that stuff. And this guy, I'm not kidding you, looked at me like I was from another planet, but he kind of nodded and said, sure. Now, did he leave my wallet outside? Absolutely not. Turns out he was a thief and a liar, but my story isn't finished yet. A few weeks later, two police detectives showed up at our door to show us some Polaroids of uh, a few suspects. And Jackie and I, after looking through the Polaroids, we recognized our armed robber. We turned the picture over, noticed there were some uh, other signatures on the back where the employees in the store had also already identified this guy of the, you know, as, of, as the suspect. And so before he left, the detective kind of pulled me aside and he said, listen, I heard, you know, what you did the other night. And then he said, that was a really stupid thing to do. Then he told me that this man had actually committed murder previously. He wasn't just a robber, he was a murderer as well. And he said to me, I don't know why he didn't shoot you. I mean, you're lucky to be alive. Now, remember, I'm from West Virginia, and in West Virginia, we don't shoot strangers. We only shoot family members. So I had no idea, right, that this guy would really shoot me. I mean, I was that naive, but it gets better. A few months after that, my wife Jackie was auditing a class with one of Dallas Theological Seminary's most beloved professors. He was a world-renowned author and speaker, very beloved man by the name of Howard Hendricks. Some of you may have heard of him. She was in his class on Bible study methods, and he begins to tell the story of a Dallas student that was held up at gunpoint at Arby's. And uh, somehow he'd heard about it. He tells uh, this whole class that Jackie is taking. He clearly does not know that she is my wife. And so after he finishes the story, the guy sitting next to my wife leans over and says to her, can you believe that guy was such an idiot? And without blinking, Jackie says to him, no, he is an absolute idiot. <laughs> and she never told him or anybody else in that class who she really was. Now, I tell you that story because I will never forget the day that I was robbed. You don't forget something like that. And what's so interesting here is that when God says, you rob me, do you know what the people do? They ask. They're oblivious. They say, well, how are we robbing you? I mean, they have no idea. They're completely oblivious to it. And this is the problem with materialism and with greed. Almost nobody thinks that it's their problem. In fact, as a pastor, I've had people confess to almost every kind of sin imaginable to me, but I've never, not one time in over 30 years of ministry, had someone confess to me that they were greedy. And do you know why? It's because nobody, absolutely nobody, thinks 
that it's their problem. And I want to define materialism for you. Materialism is, or greed, is excess concern for, love of, need for, money, and or possessions. So you just find yourself living for the next purchase, the next you know, acquisition. And the reason that nobody thinks that this is their problem is because all of us can think of someone that we know that spends a little more loosely than we do, or a little more frugally than we do. And so we can always think of someone who's less frugal than us. So it's always someone else's problem. So here's what I would recommend to us this morning that if we're going to take the Bible seriously, if we're going to believe that it's truthful, we have to each assume this morning that this could be true of us. And you may go, well, Pastor, are you trying to make me feel guilty? Absolutely not. I just don't want you to trust yourself. I don't want you to trust your own heart. You know, God's Word says that your heart and my heart are each deceitfully wicked. In other words, there's stuff bumping around in there that is dark and that we're not in tune with, and we're not even aware that it's there. And so let's ask it this way. When was the last time that you sat down in the same way that you researched the latest purchase that you made, whether it's a car or a home or a bike or you know something fairly large, and you just tried to figure out how you could be more generous with God. No, we're much more prone to research our purchases, right? Not how we can be more generous, and this is part of our problem. Now, one of the ways that God asks his people to guard their hearts and minds against greed and materialism in this passage is with something called the tithe. It literally means a tenth. And so here, God is saying, you are robbing from me, you're pillaging from me, you're plundering from me by your refusal to tithe. Now, sometimes when people hear the word tithe, they think about the law, right? They think about the old covenant. They say things like this, you know, we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace, so we don't have to tithe anymore. And even though it's true that we do not live under the old covenant anymore, I've said that on numerous occasions, when you study scripture, what you find is that the tithe actually transcends the law. It's bigger than the law. It's far more important than simply the law. And let me tease this out for you. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 14, you have Abraham tithing to a priest of God named Melchizedek before the law was even given. So, uh, people were tithing before the law. Furthermore, Jesus affirmed the tithe several times. So, for example, in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says it's right to tithe, but he says, look, don't think that tithing makes you generous. Don't stop there. In other words, the tithe should be a floor, but certainly not a ceiling, right? It's the starting point, but it's not the ultimate destination. And then, 
the game changer is this in the book, book of Hebrews, and we just did the book of Hebrews a year or so ago, right? Remember, Hebrews is the book of the New Testament that calls the Old Covenant completely obsolete. And yet, the author tells us in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, that as a priest, as a high priest on the order of Melchizedek, the same Melchizedek that Abraham tithed to before the law was given, he tells us that Jesus still receives tithes in the present day, today, as a priest on the order of Melchizedek. So if the law has been put away by Christ, and we know it has, uh, why would he still receive tithes if the tithe didn't transcend the law? See, it existed before the law was given and it continues to be practiced after the law has, has ended. And God even says there in Malachi something else that's so incredible. He says, test me in this. See if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you don't have room for it. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually said, do not test the Lord God Almighty. Do not test the Lord your God. And so out of that, God actually says, you know what? I'm going to make an exception when it comes to the tithe, I'm going to invite you to test me in that one area and that one only area to see if I won't bless you out of it. Now, why would God do that? Why would God make an exception to the tithe? And again, I think the answer is found in the book of Deuteronomy once again. We're told there that the purpose of tithing, Moses said, is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. That's it. That's the purpose right there, to learn how to put God first. And this becomes clearer as we look at the rest of the words found in Malachi. So we're told to bring the whole tithe or the whole tent into what uh, Malachi calls the storehouse, the storehouse. That word means literally treasury. Now, every temple on the face of the planet had a treasury. A treasury was a place where the silver, the gold, the valuables, you know, were all kept and they were used and sold off from time to time to support the ministry of the priests, in this case the sacrifices of the temple, right, and uh, to care for the poor, to provide for the poor. So the storehouse provided not only for the ministry needs that occurred in that day, but for the feeding of the poor and the feeding of the people. Now today, people are fed spiritually right through the ministry of a local church. So instead of priests, God has provided pastors. So where should you tithe? Well, the prevailing wisdom is, you know, you should tithe to the place where you're spiritually fed. And remember, that shouldn't prevent generosity to other organizations because the tithe is a floor. It's a starting point. It's certainly not a ceiling. Now, and again, every temple had a treasury that supported the work and ministry of that particular deity. So God says, I want you to bring me the whole tithe because the idea was that if you were not giving it to God's temple, 
You were putting your treasure into some other temple or some other treasury. And even though we might not have different temples on every street corner, we, we are all capable of using our money to support the things that we worship or our idols. So let me give you some examples. So if you find it difficult to give money away, but very, very easy to put it into your house, your house is your temple. You are looking to your house to make you feel safe and significant rather than the love of God and the watch care of God. If you find it really, really hard to give money away, but easy, almost effortless, I mean, just like falling off a log to spend money on clothing, then your wardrobe is your temple. In other words, you are relying on the way you look, what you wear, to make you feel significant before others. You're looking to your appearance for your significance and importance, again, rather than the love of God. I'll even speak to a third group. Maybe you're here and you just sneer at what people spend on things like houses or cars or clothing. And you know, you live super duper frugally and you like to save every bit of money that you get and just sock it away, you know, into things like securities and investments. <coughs> In that case, your brokerage is your temple and your treasury. You are relying on those resources to make you feel safe and significant in an out of control world rather than the love of God, God himself. Now, are we told to save in scripture? Well, of course we are, but not at the expense of the tithe. Is it wrong to invest? No, not at all, but it's wrong to invest at the expense of the tithe. And so no matter what we say, our money shows us, you know, the source of our security and significance apart from God, because here's the principle. It's almost effortless for any of us to spend money on the things that we worship, on, the th on our own idols. We have to rein ourselves in not to spend money on those things. So if you want to know what real idols you, uh, there are in your life, follow how you spend and use your money. They will reveal your real God regardless of what you say. They will demonstrate to you what temple it is that you are really tithing to. Because our money will always show us what we really worship. And it can be an approval idol. It can be a control idol. It can be a security idol. It can be a comfort idol. <clears throat> but if you find it easy to spend money on yourself, but very, very difficult to give some of your money away, you are enslaved to an idol. Your money is in a different temple than God's temple. And here, here is the irony. Money writes checks it can't cash. Money makes promises it can't keep. Look, all the money in the world can't stop cancer or a car crash. All the money in the world can't keep you safe. 
you know, it's a story I told back in November, but it's worth telling again. This is the story of Dr. Addison Leach. He taught at um, Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And there were two young women in this college where he was teaching, and their parents had sent them there to become successful. But their freshman year in college, they both became Christians, and Dr. Leach was one, had become one of their mentors. And out of that mentorship, both of these young women decided they wanted to become missionaries. Well, these parents, the parents of these two girls were livid about this, and they primarily blamed this professor. So the mother called Dr. Leach, and she said, look, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree, make a good living, get something in the bank so that she could have some security. And so Dr. Leach replied to her this way. He said, let me remind you of something, something that we don't think about a lot and that you probably already know. We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth. We are spinning around and moving through space at thousands of miles per hour. And even if we don't run into anything or nothing runs into us or we don't endure a global catastrophe, eventually we're all going to die. And that means that underneath each and every one of us, a trap door is going to open. And underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. But maybe a master's degree will give your daughter a little security. It's kind of the irony of life, right? Uh, in other words, the biggest, again, the biggest savings account in the world can't stop things like cancer or car accidents or airplane crashes. It can't delay your death. It can't give you the security that we're lulled to sleep sometimes believing that it can. Only God can give you that, and only God can give you a security that cannot be taken away. God never breaks a single promise ever. So how do we overcome money's allure and power in our lives? Well, some of us heard Brian read the words of Malachi chapter 3, the first three verses, and they seem displaced from the conversation about tithing and giving and money, but they're not displaced at all. The answer to that question lies in the temple. It lies, you know, in those words. So uh, Malachi in verse 1 talks about a messenger who will come and prepare the way for the Lord. And we know that that is John the Baptist in the Gospels, right? Um, but then... Uh, Malachi says these words in verses 2 and 3, Suddenly the Lord you are seeking, the God you are seeking, will come to his temple. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all agree that that's Jesus. That's our Jesus, our Savior. And in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to the temple and he begins to tear it down, just tear it apart. And he says some incredible words. He says, tear down this temple. And John tells us a little later that when Jesus uttered those words, he was referring to his body. He said, tear down this temple, and in three days, 
I will rise it up. And what this tells us, the shocking thing that Jesus is saying here is that he was going to become the new temple. In other words, Jesus says, I live the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died. From now on, access to God won't come through a sacrifice. It won't come through a priest. It won't come through a temple. No more temples, no more sacrificial system, no more priests. It's only me. I've come to replace all of that. I am the ultimate priest. I am the ultimate sacrifice. I am the ultimate temple. And that means that Jesus died and friends, he experienced hell for every one of you and for me. Why? Why would he do that? It's because we, you and I, were his heart's greatest treasure. You were so important to him that he sought you out and paid the penalty for your sin and mine in the most painful way possible so that he could become our significance, so that he could become our security. I mean, think about this for a moment. Think about the radical generosity that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. I mean, when you see him hanging on a cross, it's then and only then that he will become the treasure of your heart. It is only when, you, when people like you and I remember that we are the treasure of his heart that he then becomes the treasure of our heart. And he not only becomes the treasure of our hearts, he becomes our significance, he becomes our security, he becomes our safety net, and money just becomes money, nothing else. And it's only then that money will have lost its power over you, and you will no longer rely on money to bring you things like approval or significance or security or control, but you will press into him for those things. So will you begin to regularly offer back to God some of what he has so generously and graciously first given to you. You know, um, let's love Jesus, not just with our hearts or our minds. Let's love him with our billfolds. Let's love him with our wallets. Let's love him with our bank accounts. Let's love him with our purses and the things in there. Let's be better than that. Let's love Jesus uh, all the way. And after all, isn't it true that Loving Jesus with our wallets, with our bank accounts, is really the only way for us to know whether we really love him at all. So listen, often when, you know, I do talks like this, I'll say, you know, look, as a pastor, when I talk like this, it's not because I want something from you. It's because I want something for you. I want an absolute love and passion for Jesus that's untethered to things like money or things 
for the world. I want a love for Jesus that things like money and things don't get in the way of that. And so here's what I'd like to do. I just want to pray this morning for you, and then I want to pray this morning for me, and then somebody's going to come up and close us, um, you know, uh, down together. So let me just pray for every one of us in the room that money will lose its allure, its power, and its hold on us. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful today that you showed ordinary people like, uh, like us that we were your heart's treasure. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, is that, uh, that we can derive our sense of significance from you because God, we can derive our sense of value from you. What's, what's something worth? Well, it's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And you paid for us, you paid for me with your life. And that means, God, that I'm significant to you, but it wasn't just me. Every one of us in the room can say the same thing because you, you cashed out and you did that because every one of us in the room, we were your heart's treasure. And so, Heavenly Father, help us not to sit down with a calculator to discover whether we can be more generous or not, but help us first to sit down with a cross and then ask the same exact question. So would you free us, Lord Jesus, from anything this morning that would keep us from running to you and find them, finding freedom, wholeness, significance, security, all that we need in you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hey, it's been so great to be with you guys this morning, even though I couldn't do that in purpose, in, uh, in person. So just God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your day.